Welcome to Courtesy of, the podcast channel for Te Pātaka Toi Adam Art Gallery at Te Heranga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington. This episode features Aratoi Art Collection and Focus curator Sophie Thorne speaking with artist Cora Allen in a floor talk associated with the exhibition Back of House, 12th of August to 29 October 2023. Cora Allen is of Māori and Nui descent, a contemporary practitioner of the Nui tradition of bark cloth known as hiapo. Cora Allen is credited with reviving the sleeping art form, which has not been practiced in Nui for several generations. In this conversation, Sophie and Cora Allen ponder the way identity, process, materiality, and new understandings of traditional techniques are shaping a contemporary context. Thank you for being here, Cora Allen. The works that we're sitting in front of are works on Kiapo, and these two works are works which tie into the back of house theme that we've got going through all the exhibitions here in the gallery at the moment, because the works not only are works which Cora Allen has entirely made from scratch, so right from stripping away the inner layer of bark, soaking it from beating it, but they also actually are still lives of the tools which are used for making the work. So here we have a work called Whenua Paint Tools, and this work here, which is Hiapo, Hiapo tools. tools, but I, I want to start by asking a question about Hiapo Tools, mm. because I noted that on your Instagram, when you first featured this work, you titled it Self-Portrait. Mm. When my grandmother passed away last year, I looked at all the items that she'd left for me. And a lot of them at the time when she gave them to me were really weird. Like we had this little ceramic fox and um, uh, a brown, my sister received a brown chicken, like a hen, which my nana put earrings in, but my sister uses for pens. And I've got two colonial ships, just such strange objects. And for myself, I started to look at these objects as an exchange of knowledge and traditional knowledge, because with each gift came a story, not necessarily about the fox itself or about the ships, but part of her life of where she got them from. And I started looking at what if I painted myself as a self-portrait? And at the time that I painted this, this is what I felt like I looked like. I just had... Um, our baby was really young, our youngest boy, and I decided to, you know, live the dream and be a full-time artist. And I felt like I was not going to live that dream till I was about 50. And so for it to come really fast and for me to leave my job as a curator because I was making more money as an artist, I felt really privileged to be in this space where hiapo was our family's income. Making tapa here in Aotearoa was what was feeding my family, and I thought it was strange. And um, I know in the Pacific, hiapo has a hiapo and tapa, ngatu, kapa, siapo, all the different um, words we use for bark cloth is generational. It's not just an art form, but it's a business. It's something that Pacific people have been using um, as a family business and also it just happens to be amazing transmission of knowledge from tradition. And for me to be working in this space in Aotearoa, in West Auckland, with two little kids, um, you know, Auckland's not a cheap place to live. 
but for me to be a Pacific Māori um, female artist living full-time in Auckland as a full-time artist making tapa cloth. Like, I knew that was out the gate and not, you know, not in the box. And creating this particular work, this portrait, um, was a gift because then also the whenua that I've used are from my whenua. So I was able to connect my Māori whakapapa in, on top of cloth that I whakapapa back to Niue. And finding that space of objects and self-portraiture was just a kind of an experimental phase. And I, I have a ton, probably about a dozen more works that look very similar to this, but on different materials. And I feel like I only show about maybe 10% of the work I make. And that's on my Instagram as well as um, an exhibition. Before I get to some like this phase, I'll make 12 different versions of it, and I won't release the right version until it feels like it's the right white or the right modi, the right essence in that, in the, in the colors, in the shades, in the lines. Uh, most of the works, I remember what I was doing at the time, so I like to watch a lot of really bad degray movies. I, don't, I can't listen to music because I get too enthralled with the words and the emotions. And so um, I don't know if you've heard of the series Heartland, it's a Canadian show. It's like their version of our Shorten Street. And so I watched that while making these works. And so when I look at a lot of works that I'm, I've made, I kind of go back to that moment of what I was watching. And, um, yeah, I think I feel like I have a very different practice because I've had to make a sustainable living in Aotearoa. I do grow plants, so I have plants that I could make hiapo from, but most of my hiapo is made from sources from the Pacific. So I do grow the plants here, but um, I'm currently in a position where I'm thinking about, I'm Māori, but I'm using bark cloth. And so if I'm using plants from here, they become ote. But if I'm using um, material from Niue or in the Pacific, they're hiapo. And I don't know other artists who have to juggle with that, like just because of the traditional knowledge. But for myself, I make hiapo because um, Niue doesn't have other makers except one maker now, Api, who is on the island. And I feel like my knowledge sits in the space. My grandmother was a huge inspiration for my hiapo practice. And yeah, it just kind of, it came into a space where I felt like Niue needed my hands to, to make more work so that people knew about Hiapo because my generation, I didn't know about Hiapo and my dad didn't re really know about it. But my kids, they just think it's like a bed sheet. They, if I'm making work, they will just run on it, hide underneath it. And it's so common to them that they don't know a world without it. And that for me is what I want to do for my community is push it into so many families that their kids don't know that it, it wasn't as widely practiced. Could you just walk us through the process of actually making a piece like this? Mm. This roll here is um, dried hiapo. So to be able to make it here in Aotearoa, I've created a system where I can have dried material from the islands, bring it back. I soak it in water for about a week. Or if it's really old, I'll go longer. And then I'll start beating. And I beat on my tutua with my ike, which is the beater in the middle there and that is the kind of first process and once I do the first um, layering of it I can re-soak it and then it'll get to a phase where it looks like this and so this isn't one tree it's like 
two or three trees layered upon one another. And to kind of get to this space in the past, it would have taken me days. And now it takes me hours, um, which is really nice for my hands and my hips. Um, sitting for hours beating is... Someone said, oh, do you channel your ancestors? I was like, yeah, no. Like, I'm just like trying to make it through the like the series of beatings. I, I think, too, sometimes... You know, it's such a, a beautiful, connective type of practice to our tūpuna. But I also think it's, very, for me, it's just very much a part of my life. When I make, I am thinking about what's for dinner. I am thinking about when the kids need to be picked up because I work from my studio at home. And so um, usually when I'm soaking on the materials, and that's a bucket, that's a Mitre 10 bucket, the big orange ones. Um, my nana bought them for me. And everything has a system in our house. Like I'll have bucket soaking. Oh, that was soaked on Monday or Saturday. And then I'll start the beading process to kind of get here. I won't paint on it until I've spent time just looking at it at the ground usually, and I'll wait for the image to emerge. Um, I'm not very good at kind of not planning out a piece, but I feel like it emerges for me. It is something that I won't practice a whole bunch and I won't use pencil on my works. So I'll just freehand everything. Because I'm a firm believer of whatever's going to appear on the cloth is meant to be there. Um, and I I like when things aren't perfect. The one thing about, if you know New and Hiapo in comparison to other bark cloth practices, everything's freehand. And so if you see Masi from Fiji, they use a stencil process as well as Ngatu from Tonga, and it's just linear. And the same with Kapa from Hawaii, and everything can be produced quite fast, where Hiapo is, everything's freehanded. And the first time I saw archives in the Auckland Museum, I could tell whether a person was leaning on their right side while painting, or whether they were sitting on their bum or lying on their belly, just because I've practiced so much you kind of know which way your hand goes. And the perspective, instead of standing and looking down, without having that perspective, things can kind of kind of shift. And so you don't know that stuff until you're a maker, until you do it lots. And, um, yeah, those little kind of gifts of recognition only come from making. And, yeah, those little parts I've really enjoyed, learning about the hiapo process. And I think that's why hiapo looks so quirky, there's um, Nicholas Thomas actually wrote about it in a text about John Pulley's work. He said, Hiapo's quirky designs. At the time, I thought, what a dumb word to describe Hiapo. Like, I wouldn't have used that. I would have been like, majestic lines or like, you know, like well considered. <laughs> because, um, like, quirky to me is almost like off center. But I could see how he could see it as quirky. It's because nothing is uniform. Everything is from that moment of expression. And all the hiapo and like the traditional archives are based on the plants that existed at the time on the island. And so some of those patterns that we might see then, we can't see the plants now because they don't exist. And that's what I love about hiapo is that for me, it's a Pacific version of landscape painting because it's painting the whenua, it's painting the landscape, but just not in the way that we might know it. It shifts from painting the physical landscape to painting the forms that lay on top of it. And my grandmother, there was this pattern here, which is a hibiscus or a kuleval pattern. And we were, in, we were in the museum. She was asked, oh, what's that pattern? And she said, oh, flower. 
And what's that pattern? And she just would say flower. And it wasn't until we got into the car, she said, oh, that's this name or that's that name. Because she actually didn't want the museum workers to know the names because she said, this is new knowledge, it's for our people only. And then that also shifted me thinking about how I share. And so it took me a few years to actually get to this point where I would name patterns publicly. Because in New some weavers actually cover their hands while they make. We don't have a system where we, well, yeah, there are systems, but transmission of knowledge was to blood lineage only. It wasn't just to someone that you know at art school or something. It was someone who shares your blood, who understands their responsibility. And I think that's what my grandmother passed on to me is the weight of what it means to be the only maker in Aotearoa. And when people ask, oh, I've got a hair cutting or someone's, my grandmother just passed away and being the only source to make cloth sometimes is, it sucks because I might have other things on, but I want to drop it all to be the maker for, you know, this important moment in someone's life. And so hopefully in the next decade, there'll be more makers, hopefully. Has that been a difficult negotiation mm. with, you know, reviving and actually sharing this knowledge and how did you go about that? I think for myself, I've been able to share in small groups in the Newark community, which is, because there are other makers who will hold workshops, but I will hold workshops for Newark people specifically. Um, I think that version of sharing is important because who am I doing it for? It happened to be pushed into my art in different forms, but when I have traditional pieces and the fruits of my work, the best part goes to my community. Um, I I do find, because being a curator and a preparator in the past, I'm able to see how traditional skills can be revived, but then just placed in these particular spaces. And I think they're great for conversations like this and to develop on our thinking into contemporary practice. But I also feel like sometimes the community loses that opportunity to access your work. That You know, there might be... I have traded for pillowcases, chop suey, um, food, cakes, cucumbers, um, because I didn't want someone who wanted my work for their son's 21st to not be able to have it. And so I had to decide early on what I wanted for my practice. I did a show early on with a dealer gallery and they asked me, well, if you're going to show these kinds of works and, and sell these works, what makes it fair that this person's paying for cucumbers and this person's paying money? And so my work is very um, divided. So this particular piece, it probably it wouldn't work if someone has passed away and we need to wrap their body in it but my traditional work does. And so I make sure that every year I have at least 10 pieces that I can trade or koha with community because that for me is, is so not just important to me, but like my practice represents my family. And if I'm not able to um, support the community that my work's for, then I just feel like I'll be failing or not, not doing the right thing. But I do enjoy being able to make works that can push into this contemporary space. And this work for me is quiet and contemplative, especially these works too, because I'm able to use traditional patterns, but I am able to 
kind of pull them out where I can think singularly about them and they're not all confused and all um, put together where they're almost overwhelming. They're able to be in kind of a, a position where they can be thought about individually, the different plants. Um, and this, it was funny, I did a paint making workshop at my house last night to celebrate Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori. I'm currently studying full-time in Dumakireo and so all my all the students from Takiyota visited and I taught them different processes but through a Māori lens and so it was using Mātauranga Māori with whenua and um, I showed them these tools which are the kind of traditional western tools for paint making and when I showed them these versus kind of Pacific tools and then versus Māori stone which um, kōkowaio pigments were pressed into uh, they started to piece kind of the mātauranga Māori or what would be more accessible to themselves and so you can't just easily go out and purchase these tools but a bowl and a rock to crush pigment, you can't and um, like I shared with them some of these tools and so this is a kōkowai palette and so I did a, a talk at Kura about this, but if, you know, I could use this as lipstick and the binder for this is Cody gum, so it's not poisonous or anything. And, you know, kokowai was used for a lot of traditional carvings and it's used in my works. And this particular color is from Porerua, so a man who harvested this when the motorway was created, he gifted me some. But this, it's, I could use this if we went clubbing tonight, Daniel. I could put this on <laughs> as lipstick. And, um, but you know, and just in that act itself is an act of, um, accessing and connecting to tupuna, that matauranga that isn't necessary in daily life, but I've just automatically created something that I can have in my contemporary space at present. And I think that's beautiful. Like it doesn't have to be extremely academic or, like I don't have to make a big show out of it. And I think that's what I like about our lives is that our sons know all these tools. They know how to make paint from whenua. It's not a big deal for them. And when I showed adults last night, they were like blown away. And I could imagine my boys going, yeah, we do this every weekend, you know? Yeah, and it's that idea like paint just comes in a tube, you know? Like, <laughs> Well, my boys, don't, my boys don't know that. Yeah, Paint is made, like paint is harvested with these tools you know on the side when we drive we pull over the side of the road have a little whack you know we do a cut of care before we do everything and so they're seeing these processes and they're thinking oh this is just what families do it's like no son you know they don't people don't do this and they don't carry little bags or you know have dirt sitting in the back of their boot drying off and stuff and I think for myself that part of my practice is um like I didn't grow up like that. I grew up just playing netball, not just, but doing sports. And art wasn't a huge part of my life. And so being able to set them up, because they don't have a choice, they will make here for That's just part of what their lives will be like. Um, because, well, you know, I've done all this work. I just want one of them to be an artist. Just one of the, one of the boys. <laughs> yeah. These three works were made as part of the Makan House residency, and that was uh, during lockdown, is that right? Yeah, we just went into level three. We kind of moved everything in, but I couldn't, 
you know, you can't say hi to the community or anything. So then I just kind of kept my head down and just made. And so lots of these, lots of these types of works, all the works that I wanted to do for the last four or five years just came out. Um, and I just made, and actually some of, so this is number 15 and number 17. So these two pigments, you can see how they're different, but they were harvested from the same spot to the same beach and that was um, the beach at the end of Otetori Bay Road where Makan lived and he had a, a little rowboat so actually before the residency started I bought a little rowboat to mimic Makan but also it transformed my entire practice getting onto the water and so I'll just pass these around actually you can have a little look and you can kind of see the difference in colors and how did you find out um, who kind of gave you the knowledge of where to go and get mm. pigments from or harvest them? Um, the use of colour in Pacific tapa cloth is it's just always been there and so I've known how to harvest colour from the whenua just through collecting whenua or mangrove which is a really great source of dye. You'll see it's really it's shining so it leaves an amazing shine but then um, soot and the first time I learned how to make soot actually was a bottle filled with kerosene, a tea towel shoved in the bottle, it's glass, put on the ground, set a light with a pot on top. And I remember when I saw that, I was like, it's not okay. What if we die? It's going to explode. But this had been, this woman had been making um, siapa for two decades, and that was her process. And then when I saw how we harvested it, the pot itself collected maybe 10% of the soot because it was windy. And so the video that you see around the corner is actually um, a version of how to create soot that I created to help gift the knowledge back to her so then she can make it more successfully and get over 90% of the soot. And that actual, um, the funnel that you see is now in Samoa with her. And so part of my practice wasn't just making um a sustainable practice for myself, but creating a system that could help other makers if it was easier than the process they were doing. And this is far easier soot-wise in collecting black, yeah, for black. And so um, once I kind of discovered little bits of knowledge, like the whenua that's being passed around, um, I'm in this kind of network with a collective called Kowairaro, who's a Māori pigment, Matauranga collective, and we trade in dirt. Sometimes we're like, oh, do you want to be in a show? Here's an artist fee. I was like, I don't want an artist fee. Can I have some dirt? And so we all have these kind of exchanges of whenua to um, just build up our archives, but also ex explore colors of papato and naku. And I got asked this question last night, actually, like, how do I know what to take or what would I take? And we all kind of agreed that the best way to take is from your own whenua, from your rohe, which you come from. And you would talk to people about what colours are probably significant in your iwi. But then also find tools that work well. Like this is super light and this is um, a paku. And it was created by Johnson Butihira and I forget his partner. But um, they created tools so that... Um, young children could work in the mata in the garden and this just happens to be really good for whenua and also looks why well, I think it looks cool yeah, and um, also you know it links back to traditional shape tools and so I guess to your question how do I know how to do this particular work with whenua I can't remember a point 
where I don't know what when I didn't know it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and like I just, I've read enough about other um, cultures, indigenous cultures using pigment as well. My husband's from um, the Lakota Sioux people in South Dakota and um, Native American people have their own version. And so learning about that and comparing it to Moana practices has kind of just helped me to really identify the uniqueness in either Mātauranga Māori or Pacifica knowledge. Yeah. As I understand it, this was uh, the Makan House residency, was that first time that you were exploring using colour on Yeah, yeah. using well, using this yeah. much colour. Yeah. Um, usually I'll just use black because Nguyen Hiapo is black on white Hiapo and the Makan house, I thought, sweet, I'm just going to find like one or two colors. I ended up having 19 shades. Yeah, and it just blew my mind. And I was like, what? What a gift. And one day I was, we were actually at the beach and I was just looking down. I look up and there's a giant block of pink, the one that's going around. It's just bright pink just sitting there. And it just blew my mind that I was at the right place at the right time. And because I'm not from Te Kauerao Maki area, some of the um, artists from that area have asked me what, where are the colors. And so I've just told them, I'm like, if you want this color, you go to this beach. And so that's an awesome part of the practice too, is that I'm able to tell other artists like where colors are in particular spaces. And so we can share the knowledge. I think the just the use of the color for me is really, it feels, no, I don't want to say healing, but it like takes it to like another level that's really nice and harmonious. And I've tried to use actually pigments on canvas and it just doesn't like it. It's pilly, it just falls off. Artists who use pigment for the first time, they'll learn that, oh, it doesn't want to stay on it. You actually have a, you have to have a binder and then you have to have something that seals it. And I learned the hard way when I painted too thick and it just flaked off and fell off. And so there's moments for hiapo when you want to use colour. On hiapo, any kind of tapa, I feel like if you want the colour to soak in, it has to be wet. So after you beat, I press my works up onto a window, the glass, because it will dry flat. And then I use a, um, a really hard bristle and just kind of massage it in. And you'll get these beautiful kind of colour blocks. These, I, I use them more like a water palette, like a... Like for this, I just activate it with water and it'll be like a water palette. And this is um, binded with Cody gum. So I just crush Cody gum, add the pigment, and then um, push it into this kōhatu. And then I would just have a brush with lots of water and then paint in this way. Which is kind of nice because you can carry them everywhere. And if I'm not using kōhatu or stone, I'll use like mussel shells or power shells, which are some of them are inside the case that you'll see. And yeah, it just, it's such a beautiful way to connect to kind of older vessels or older objects to use the colours as well. Yeah, I feel like I've talked a lot about this. <laughs> I find it a really fascinating. My background is in um, heritage material science and I studied here at Victoria and part of my research was looking at the Tanikaha dye um, and how that was adhered to Pumian tenets or harakiki in traditional methods. And I remember sitting here in a class where we were talking about the different kind of trade routes that there must have been across, you know, the, the motto to get 
different pigments for different historic heritage materials that we were looking at. And just thinking of, you know, that here's this color, how did it actually get to this place and how, what were you trading for it? Just, mm. you know, you are part of such a history there as well. Well, um, I, yeah. I trade for my pukepoto too. So my blue comes from Isaac Te Awa, who's a Māori curator from Te Papa. And we usually trade in stuff, like art stuff, you know. Um, and for me, though, Pukeporto or Vivianite Blue, I don't know anyone else who has an access to such an um, amazing variety of the blue. It's, I don't think it's in any of these works. I held out for years using it because it's such a beautiful, vibrant pigment. And What does it come from? Do you know? I do. Yeah. I just can't share. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing with pigments, right? Mm -hmm. It's like they're not infinite resources. And if you tell the wrong person, they're going to go to that site and just take it all. And that's why I've been really reluctant to share it in the past because, you know, yourself, you have like these values of take care of Papa Tuanuki. You do your karakia first, you ask the right people, you take a handful, you don't take a bucket. And then just just takes one person to ruin that cycle. And I think, though, if you have that kind of whakapapa and that connection to it, you know never to go outside those boundaries. And um, Isaac, who's from Kaitahu, so it's from Kaitahu area, and he handles the knowledge or the use and gifts it to people and just really organic ways too. And he's just like, oh, I met this artist who was working with um, Harakeke or Muka. I gifted them these things to have a try. So we're all very much in an experimental phase um, with a lot of the materials. It's not like I can look up on Google, how would I apply whenua to hiapo? And so this is a moment where we get to play, get to experiment, and to get to trial all these um, pigments for the first time, I guess, on hiapo, because traditionally hiapo never had any color. And so I am working for the first time with color. And when I went back to Niue, I was asked, um, how did I make my black? And I, I have different processes, but they're actually um, candle nut hulls that I collect and there, this is recorded, eh? They are behind a church in a village where my grandmother and grandfather are from. And um, I went one day when everyone was at Sunday church. I should have been at church too, but I didn't want anyone to know where I was going. And I was looking for these hulls and I was looking everywhere. And then when I went to drive back, I was like, oh, I just can't find them. And I stopped the car and then I was surrounded by these trees that were the source of the ink. And I was like, oh, I just was looking too hard. And so sometimes kind of the finding of these resources have been yeah, real interesting. I got stung in the face three times by wasps trying to find the hiapo plant in a garden in New Air. And so, yeah, and so it, it's come with adventures, finding little parts of these, um, the knowledge for, yeah, just even just for these works, like getting to there, to this place took years of trials and, yeah, random ass stuff has happened. And have yeah. you had much success with growing? Um, the plant here. Yeah, it grows fine. It does? Yeah. Well, actually, we moved from a house and it didn't grow past my height. And then we planted it at the Pacifica Arts Centre in West Auckland, where there's lots of other um, island groups like Tukilo, Tuvalu, Cook Island, Samoa, Fiji. And I planted it in this space and it is huge. It just took off. And then 
it grows like a weed so then it shoots the vines this way and then they grow up and so all you need to do is just harvest the babies get them ready and then I've just put them in a space where people just could take them and plant them and wherever they needed to and the act of that though was you know for the first time the generation before me who knew about Hiapo who knew about Tapa but that was something from back in the islands can now have the plant in their garden and they can now grow it themselves and I don't care if they're makers or not but they can say oh when I was a little girl this is what our people used to make with and just that connection for me is enough and it was funny a Cook Island lady um, Mama Mary she said oh I've been looking after your plant her name is Matangini Fale which is a hiapo maiden and she said oh but I've been singing Cook Island songs I think she's Cook Island I was like no she's a new way of plant and so all these different mamas were singing their different songs to her and she's grown huge huge and I think that sometimes that's what happens is when the community are inputting into something as little as a tree you know they're able to just like help it grow into this um, beautiful rako that has provided many other little babies for other people and it's nice too because a few of the people I've met through workshops have planted their whenua from after their babies have been born underneath these trees and so now these trees are um having new memories with new families and yeah all those little things are just magic I feel like they're magic for a practice like mine mm -hmm. is it a yeah a misunderstanding then that um the reason that it wasn't practiced in New Zealand um mm -hmm. to do with the growth of the plants that I um I think that's an interesting question I was just asked by a, um, a Maori writer about the use of tapa the, our climate doesn't grow it like it does in the islands. It's so much juicier. And I don't know if you know, you know, like it's just juicier. The plants are bigger and fuller. You can make cloth here, of course, but in a few weeks, I'm actually going to Tahiti to do a project with Te Papa. And there's about 12 tapa makers and we're responding to the Alexander Shaw book. And the Shaw book was a collection of tapa that Cook collected from all around the Pacific. And in those samples, he does not have Māori samples. There's no Māori aote. And Cook was the collector of all things. And when I think about that, why wouldn't he have it? And for myself, I believe that the practice wasn't as... Um, it wasn't a flourishing practice like it is in the Pacific. And there's a picture that I think a lot of us know of... Um, a Māori person trading a crayfish for a tapaka. Yeah, we know that one. And that was drawn by Tupaya. But that was for tapa. So they were trading for tapa. And so a lot of tapa from collections were actually pieces from the Pacific. They weren't made here in Aotearoa. And I think just because we've seen it reoccur so in so many examples, you can kind of see that Tahitian um, tapa was brought here on the trip with Tupaya as well in the endeavor and for me that really signifies that Māori did value it and they might not have had a flourishing practice like they still did in the Pacific but it was you know something that was used in adornment for it's the ear yeah. Yeah. yeah but do we know if that was made here or not we don't know and there are Patu Ote inside the Auckland Museum that they talk about but as a practitioner myself I I see that, you know, there's harakeke, there's pingao here, and all those kind of really sturdy materials that would have been used and were used, you know, obviously a lot more are things that um, 
are sturdy and hiapo or tapa just wouldn't last that long for those kinds of practices, not in our climate. I could probably wear, I made a hiapo scrunchie once and I could probably wear it maybe for a week before it started to get really tatty. And so the um, use of the material itself, I think in cultural activity, from like just my opinion, I probably get told off for this. Um, I don't think it had a huge position in Māori culture. However, I do know like where I fuck up too in the Hodaki, there's a fakatoki about Ote, but it talks about Ote being used um, to signify wind and movement of wind. It wasn't used as an adornment in this fakatoki. It did refer to it as just being something that would tell us about um, the weather pattern at the time. Yeah, so it's this is a really interesting <laughs> I just don't want to get in trouble because I know that um, some of my other opinions can debunk other people's practices. And But I do think it's important that um, we have rigorous conversations about it because Ote itself can grow here now and it's fine, especially with the kind of like fertilizers and stuff that we have. Um, but yeah, I really, I my work whakapapa is to hiapo and the strength of that lineage in the Pacific. That was part of a starting point for me for thinking through this exhibition was actually thinking about those patuate from here and thinking about that kind of um, potentially lost practice. Um, and that, that was a point where I started, but obviously went in quite a different um, direction um, thinking through this exhibition. And, and we had a conversation very early on about that and I was, you were so generous with your knowledge about that. Um, and like also, I think we use so many different materials and items from the Pacific. You know, on the waka, we brought so much different matauranga with us. Why wouldn't we explore and exchange? And I know that's a thing. And I do think, um, I, I don't want to say stuff that will get me in trouble. We can leave that one there yeah. because I think it's also a good um, kind of segue thinking through that um, is actually thinking through the exhibition that you have at um, Dunedin Public yes. Art Gallery at the moment, Encountering Aotearoa and I just think it would be such a shame yeah. to not um, have, talk about that no, while you're here a, today It's a great yeah. segue because um, <laughs> I have been thinking about this position of when, um, when the waka came to the whenua when was the point that knowledge became Māori knowledge? And when um, Tangata became Tangata Māori and not Tangata Pacifica? And being from both Whakapapa, I've always had to pick when I go to things. And that for me has always been kind of like, I feel like I'm a swing and I have to move in between. But being both at one time simultaneously, the show Encountering Aotearoa in Dunedin has been my chance to kind of be in that space because all the works are made from the Moana. So then um, me and my dad took a two-week trip around Aotearoa studying in um, Te Waipunamu, and I painted the whenua in one kind of big... Um, journey over two weeks and that for me was a time where I could access what are my thoughts in regards to um, when our tūpuna came to this whenua did they karanga did they call out anything could, how, how loud were the manu how loud were the seals and what was going on in that kind of um, space and how would I paint that if I was to um, the works themselves are all I, I've got 
they're all thinner, everything's thinner. And some of the works are on here, Paul. Um, however, in the making of them, we were on a boat called the Heritage Adventurer, and my dad thought we were going on a cruise. And we'd get on the boat, and every day we're going to explore um, an important site that pertained to the journey that Cook took on the endeavor. And so we're learning a lot about this history. We're doing lots of hikes and lots of hikoi through the Fenua. And my dad was experiencing a different kind of, kind of encounter. And so the title, Encountering Aotearoa, does reflect back onto some of that stuff that happened. But also it it really got us to engage and look at the voice of Māori and the narrative of those spaces now and how would I um, look at sharing that narrative. And so Encountering Aotearoa has um, my biggest painting. It's a funeral painting that's 17 metres long. Um, and it's on a frame that is the same measurements as the house James Busby lived in, which is in the Tiritia Waitangi Treaty Grounds, and that is the last place that um, the treaty was drafted. And having that massive Fenua landscape sit on top of a frame of that kind of house and space is a really, um, for me, it was a way of thinking about how our Fenua sits in regards to ownership now, accessibility now, and all the politics that are happening with our up-and-coming elections. And, you know, it kind of, for me, pushes into that space of maybe, you know, how did we claim Fenua when we first came here? But the, I feel like the conversation is too long and deep. But, um, yeah, and the show just kind of is starting to touch upon those areas. And um, it was really fun to make, actually. My dad helped a lot with the process of it because on board Tupaya also had a cousin or a family member, Tayata, on board the Endeavour with him who often gets missed out. And my dad was that version of Tayata. So he came along to um, help assist with the um, making of the works and the processing of the whenua. But also he documented from a place that's not an art person too. So he, or he, he carves, but he just took these awesome, really naive drawings and notes of every day with extreme amounts of stickers and highlighters. Um, from his perspective and so the making of the work also made me look at what he is experiencing as a, um, a, a Nguyen man on a trip around a country we've lived in our whole lives but he hasn't experienced it from the Moana space like that and I didn't see the painting until we hung it up because it's so big that it doesn't fit in our house. Um, I had to paint it in different panels, and then once it was prepared, I just kind of wrapped them, and I was like, well, we'll see you at the other side. Um, and it happened to fit perfectly, actually. And it's the kind of painting that I dreamt up, and it actually just magically happened. And um, in a few weeks, in October, we're actually going to be doing a talk by the works with um, other Pacifica Māori writers and all I want to do is pick their brains about what the work makes them feel because that's for me is an important aspect about how it makes my community feel and what they think about and so I'm looking forward to those questions from them. <laughs>